Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. (laughs) He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Hi, welcome to the Financial Foresight podcast. I'm Isaiah Douglas. I'm joined with Ian Bloom and Colin Overweg today. Wanted to chat about investing at all-time highs. Thoughts, guys? What do we think? It's kind of a hot topic at the time, especially with uh, all the tweets coming out from uh, our president, Donald J. Trump, talking about, uh, you know, kind of giving the middle finger up to to China and a bunch of other uh, situations here. So people are always saying, well, if, you know, things are changing, I haven't had any clients reach out yet, but in the past when certain economic situations flare up, people always say, well, how should we change our investment strategies and how should we, you know, react to this type of situation? And I think that's probably where the conversation will stem. So um, have you guys had any clients reach out or talk about this stuff specifically? Thankfully, no. Uh, My conversations with my clients are all centered around long-term stuff. I have had conversations with non-clients about it, though, which is way more normal. You know, when people find out that you're a financial planner and and they have a feeling about something like the market, they'll just walk up to you and ask uh, because they want to see what you have to say about it, you know? So I I get a lot of comments from non-clients about, like, well... It's President Trump and the economy has been good, but I don't know if it's going to be good for a long time. And I'm like, well, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I don't invest based on what I think is going to happen next. So I think that's a great point. I mean, there's facts don't have feelings and hunches never really lead to good results. Um, The counterpoint that I would make to the whole markets at all time high, um, that's the U.S., so the last time I checked, you can invest outside the U.S. as well. And um, there's a lot of really cheap areas to put money to work. And that's personally where I would look to add if someone was to come to me and say, you know, where would they want to put money today? Um, not all time highs for international. So. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, just I mean, diversification, when I put together portfolios for clients, it's really to try to weather all storms. So, you know, if you look at past market data, you can put together a portfolio that should be acting a certain way. If you don't want any volatility, well, then cash is probably going to be near your friend. And uh, if you're looking for some major volatility, getting into uh, diversified equities or, you know, equities throughout multiple different asset classes and markets, um, and then some combination in the middle or bonds and and things like that to, to reduce that. Um, but it always does crack me up when clients are saying, you know, markets are at all time highs because you really need to put that in context because just, uh, last or in 2017, the market hit 62 all time highs. And then last year in 2018, the market had 18 new all time highs. So CNBC will come out and be like, 
oh my gosh, we have new all-time highs, and there's been over 1,100 all-time highs since 1950. So one out of almost every 15 trading days actually hits an all-time high for the S&P 500. So all-time highs is like really not that rare of a phenomenon. So it's just kind of uh, almost humorous when CNBC comes out screaming that all-time highs are in the market. It's like no one freaks out that the dollar menu at McDonald's is at all-time highs. Uh, the cost of a Ford Mustang is at all-time highs, but you don't hear people freaking out and screaming about that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it just is almost kind of comical. And, you know, just through, you know, the natural... Uh, you know, inflation just bringing up the cost of goods, even if companies continued to sell the exact same bar of soap, uh, just through inflation of slowly increasing uh, the bar of soap, uh, their revenue dollars are going to slowly go up and the price of their shares are slowly going to rise. So really, that it, it isn't that uh, crazy. I think the, you know, CNBC is really looking to try to grab the attention of their viewers, obviously, that's what they are. So screaming that all-time highs are happening and that you need to be watching this program at this particular moment in order to save your life and your family, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the message they're trying to deliver, which in my opinion is you know, just terribly disruptive. It's like a, a huge distraction for actual investments. Yeah, CNBC makes their money by selling advertisements for the person that says, hey, buy gold in these loose coins and markets at all-time highs diversify like that's how cbc makes their money from selling ads let's let's not be um silly and think they do things otherwise so it it's a it is a source of fun watching i mean it can be entertainment if you like it i sometimes enjoy listening to different people talk and battle it out but at the same time i'm not building any sort of investment advice or portfolio or any sort of <clears throat> investment strategy based on the comments that are made yeah, I, I mean, I think the other thing that we kind of touched on is that people always associate the U.S. stock market with the returns of their portfolio and specifically like one index. So they'll be like the Dow is up. Right. And then I'll teach a class where I'll explain what the Dow is. And people are like, do I even own any of that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how your portfolio does relative to the Dow. But that's kind of the point, right, is is people associate these like general statements by the media with their exact returns. And it's just not true, like depending on what you're invested in, in your 401k, which is where most Americans hold a lot of investment, like it, you're just probably not that directly associated with any of the stuff they're talking about on the media. But it, it is, you know, on CNBC or or, or whatever it is a way for them to get people to pay attention, right? Because they can say, oh, this is really down or oh, this is really up and therefore your portfolio is really down or really up. And, uh, and that grabs attention even if it's not true. Totally agree. Um, my last uh, comment on it will be a shameless plug for a video blog that I made about this exact topic because I did have so many clients talk to me about uh, especially towards the end of 2018 when the market started to get a little bumpy there in December. They're like, oh my goodness, markets are at all-time highs. We're just starting to see the beginning of a huge correction. And it's like, it's impossible to predict. And even if it were to go down by 55% or 57% like it did in October uh, 2007 to the trough in March of 2009, uh, where are we at today? 
I would love to buy right before any of these corrections uh, of like August of 87 or December of 99 before the tech bubble. Like if I could invest now in those and then have my money go down by 50% and then see where it is today, my gosh, that would be just a steal. So we just got to try to shun that noise out, stick to your globally diversified portfolio, stick to your plan. Um, and, and try not to be reactive, as difficult as that is, and try to be proactive with your uh, planner or at least your investment strategy. Yeah, Colin, I think that's a good point. As long as you're not going into retirement, right? You can't make it up if, if you're going into retirement, you're going to start using that money. So for someone that's younger, it makes a ton of sense to want totally. to see to ring buy things cheaper. Um, but moving into retirement, that's where having the conversation around how are you actually allocated? Do you know what the term correlation means? Do you understand hey, being diversified means you're going to say sorry, but at the same time, you're also not going to be in this burning forest when the market goes down to where you can't live. Because so many people, like you said, Ian, benchmark to the S&P or the Dow, that should not matter. Like It literally does not matter. What matters is, are you able to live the lifestyle that you want? Can you retire? Can you accomplish what you want? Amen. That's it. And if you want to make a big pile of Scrooge McDuck money, then just be really aggressive and don't worry about everything else. And... I think it's just hard for sometimes for people to understand what true diversification is. There's not many Americans that have true diversification since they have 75 to 80 percent of their investment assets in the United States. That's not true diversification. And so having someone come to them and explain what diversification is, they're kind of like, "Ah, I don't know if I like that. I'd rather just kind of keep doing what I was doing because it can be painful and you are going to say sorry a lot if you're diversified. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're just not going to see, like, if you're truly diversified with a lot of negative correlation in your portfolio, you're just not going to see, like, the positive 40% gains sometimes, right? Because one of your assets won't be doing the same thing that everybody else's is. And that's okay, right? If you get positive 12% when everybody else is getting positive 20, but then you only have a negative 5 when everybody else is getting negative 15, you can live with that. It just depends on who you are as an investor and how you want your portfolio built. Yeah, it's so counterintuitive. I mean, you want to be the person talking at the cocktail party about the 50% gain I had last week or, you know, whatever the case is. And I, man, it's so it's so unsexy to just be like, yeah, I just have, you know, my, my assets, you know, all over the place so that, you know, I'm never the, the biggest winner or the biggest loser. And I just uh, take advantage of rebalancing. It's like, oh, sweet. Like, yeah. <laughs> my assets have an average a very comfortable 6% return for me after taxes. <laughs> That's not like a sexy conversation, exactly. right? <laughs> but, no, but it works. Not at all. <laughs> So not at all. No, no, nobody that saves diligently over a 35 year period and then retires a little bit early uh, and is able to live and maintain their great living standards is probably ever going to make the cover of CNBC. And you're not getting many blog posts written about just being responsible and investing in a way that makes sense where it's it's simple, but not easy. It takes time, but it can be a surefire, surefire way to build wealth over long time for sure yeah and then one one quick thought on that as well is you know so much of this is talked about just the investment piece we didn't talk about savings and that will be for another episode but if we want to actually get down to what actually matters let's talk about like savings more so than the investment piece but yeah yeah for sure i mean savings are what build your portfolio over time the returns are super nice they they are what adjusts you for inflation and allows you to build the wealth but Saving the money is the most impactful thing. 
So, Like you said, we can cover more about that on another week, but uh, why don't we dive into the tweet of the week here? So for those of you who are listening to this for the first time, which is, I think, everybody, because this is the first episode <laughs> we put out, we're going yeah. to do a tweet of the week. And so all three of us have selected our own tweet, and we're going to do a bit of a random selection here. If you've never used it before, random.org can generate a closest to possible true random number. And uh, so I'm going to click this, and we're going to see what comes up. So we got a two, which means we're going with Colin's tweet this week. So Colin, what do you have? All for right, us? cool. So my tweet of the week was by uh, Physicians on Fire. Okay. So if you guys are familiar with the uh, highly controversial Fire Group, uh, it's an acronym that stands for Financially Independent, Retire Early. And what they they tweeted a pretty interesting article, which I. Uh, here all the time, but I never really thought about was the difference between being financially independent and financial freedom. So I don't know uh, if you guys want to take a stab at maybe what your definition of financial independence versus financial freedom would be, but they actually came up with a mathematical formula for it, uh, which I thought was super interesting and kind of helped shape uh, a little bit of my thought on those two topics. I really thought at first, quite honestly, that they were like almost interchangeable, but I'll let you guys bounce around and then maybe uh, close Why don't you go through their, the tweets uh, so we have a little said. more context before we just uh, take some stabs at the wall, so to speak. Throw darts at the wall. That's the actual Okay. <laughs> sure. Stabbing the wall. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, stabbing the wall. Uh, okay, so basically what they're saying is that financial independence is when you no longer have to work for, uh, you, you no longer have to have earned okay. income. You have enough assets or fixed income sources from social security or a pension or what have you, uh, along with your assets that you can now maintain your current uh, standard of living. So let's say for example, you, know, you, you need $50,000 to uh, keep your house afloat and that would include no savings, no extra, things that would just be able to maintain everything as is, then you could retire at, let's just say, a 4% withdrawal rate um, of like, what would that be, one and a half million or something? Um, this second, actually, I'll just quick do it. At two million, if you had four or uh, $50,000 living uh, expenses. So, and then the difference was, well, what what's financial freedom then? Well, then financial freedom, they said, would be to be able to live with an additional standard of uh, or an additional ladder, you should say, maybe of uh, discretionary income. Yeah. So now instead of just being able to cover your living expenses and not having to work, now you can you know, go on an additional vacation than just the one that you have budgeted for. Now you can kind of splurge a little bit more. You can do a little bit above and beyond. And so for basically the, what you're saying is like financial independence is the necessary money and financial freedom is play money on top of the necessary money. And they basically, okay. without getting into the weeds, they had it a little bit more uh, complex to it, but it was pretty much just like 2x of what your uh, standard would be, which, which was really tough to, and they did a better job of actually diving into how they derived at that, but that's pretty much where it came down to. I mean, they, they talked about like your fixed expenses, like utilities and things like that. And then 
all of your discretionary expenses and then they basically doubled your discretion and said you know now instead of taking one vacation you can take two like being able to double everything that you're used to living would be almost to the point of freedom um, but you know it's kind of tough because one would argue that you know financial freedom would be I can literally spend my money doing anything and they're like all right well we got to put some parameters on this thing so you know it's not like you can just spend 10 million dollars a year uh, and that would be financially free like we got to try to put some parameters on it see I think I think this is probably an interesting conversation mostly because it comes down to the individual right totally. I, I have some clients who financial independence is their financial freedom from a mental perspective right they they just want to be able to not work and spend time with each other spend time with their loved ones which costs them almost nothing so given that I I don't know if I agree with the definition of financial freedom, mostly because I think that that's going to be an individualized thing more than anything else. I think I agree with the definition of financial independence, you know, being able to run your household without having to work for the money is is financial independence. But I think that being able to consider yourself financially free is going to depend on the goals and aspirations of the individual. Um, because there are some people where financial freedom is just, you know, $500 a month more than their financial independence benchmark because they don't really see a way to spend more money than that in a way that they would enjoy and value. So I don't know. I think, I think it's six, one half dozen, the other, but I don't, I don't really think the definition holds up from person to person. I agree with that. I would echo exactly what you just said. I think once you can tell you know, an employer to kind of shove it. And if you have a bad day, you can just resign. Um, that to me is financial independence and freedom and whatever else you want to call it from the standpoint of saying, now you spend two X like, yeah, to what you said, Ian, like if I don't need to take other vacations or I'm not really that person, maybe I don't need double. I just think that's hard. I think they're the same thing. And I, I get the idea and the concept of the, the article, but, um, I know they put out a lot of good content. I guess I just don't necessarily agree with where their conclusion is, but it is an interesting tweet. I think it's a little semantic, right? Which is what we're getting down to, which is like separating these words seems like a good idea until you look at it from person to person. And it's like, well, like if you have to take more than three seconds to explain the difference to another human being, is that really a term that needs separation? I mean, I, I just think not really. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's it's obviously super subjective, but I just haven't really put any thought into the two different terms and people use them in my opinion, yeah. usually pretty interchangeably, which you probably should be able to, but I don't know. In, so, in case someone's ever like, no, I'm not financially independent or I'm not financially free, but I'm financially independent. It's like, what the hell? Mm. <laughs> so, uh, which also, by the way, I got to quick correct my miserable math. If you want to have, live on $50,000 with a 4% withdrawal rate, you would need 1250000 dollars not, you know, I knew that, million. Colin, but I wasn't going to point it out because I didn't feel the need to bust you like that on live live radio, but here we are. Hey, that's all right. I'm good. Hey, I can correct myself and feel free to, you know, bash me upside the head with my math. So, hey, that's so okay. random generator, flip the coin now. That, Who's next? No, I think we're going to just move on to the kind of last topic, which, um, Ian, yeah. you want to talk a little bit about the Schwab? I know it's a little dated, but it, I think it's still relevant news. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, about a month ago, I think at this point, there was a lot of buzz around Schwab offering a advisory addition to their portfolio offerings. It was going to be $300 up front and then $30 a month for what I would consider, you know, a pretty robust financial planning offering compared to what a lot of asset managers call financial planning, which is pretty cool, right? You, you know, maybe you get an hour a month with this person or, or whatever, and they haven't really clearly defined exactly what the service is going to be yet. But because they were talking about offering financial planning for, you know, what we would consider a very low cost, I think a lot of financial planners and people in the industry started asking themselves like, well, what do I do better? Right. And, and, and what is like, how am I going to compete with this was almost kind of the tone. Um, so I guess my stance on it and you guys feel free to offer your takes is I don't really see them as competition. I think they're going to actually help. Um, coming out with a financial planning separate from asset management offering is just going to kind of help us delineate our services. You know, you can point to Schwab and go look at a regulator and be like, look, the, you know, they have a, this separate broken out service model. Or you can talk to a client and be like, look, Schwab and Vanguard are doing the same thing where they will charge you a separate fee for this additional service. And, and that's basically what I'm doing, right? I'm not offering the same service, but I am charging a separate fee for my time for planning. And so I think that that's kind of an interesting topic, and I think it, it's interesting to get multiple perspectives. So why don't you guys offer what you think? Well, I, I mean, I don't know too much about the uh, details of the Schwab plan, like how they're going to limit how much service they offer or exactly what they're going to be doing for their clients. But um, just from a high perspective, I, I know a lot of our advisors in our field were kind of like, oh, no, like here they come to to take our jabs, but uh, really, it was a uh, South Park reference there. Uh, they took our jabs. <laughs> exactly, but no, I, I actually see it as as an awesome thing for, for the consumer. I mean, if you can, because if you think about what's the alternative for these folks, uh, probably going to, uh, you know, some type of broker or insurance agent, and they're going to offer their quote-unquote advice to sell them a product, and uh, and that that's really where the industry has been. It's like you know, for financial planning has kind of been a uh, I don't know. I want to say I don't want to say too much like a wealthy person's uh, service, but a lot lot of advisory firms you know have a million dollar asset minimum or five hundred thousand dollar asset minimum or two hundred and fifty you know even a hundred thousand dollar asset minimum really shrinks the size of who you can work with and it really increases the age of your average client and, uh, and and cuts a lot of younger people out who really need some great financial planning and could probably really benefit from paying 30 bucks a month to Schwab and have someone teach them how to pay off their debt, invest into their 401k to get a match, make sure their allocation's correct and maybe open a Roth. <laughs> Like that's just awesome, and if Schwab can do that for thirty bucks a month and set people on the right trajectory to building long-term sustainable wealth, I mean, I I just really applaud them because I could not do that, and that's not really the service I offer. So, like you said, Ian, I don't really see them as competition, and uh, it, it's uh, it's really just a great thing for the overall uh, consumer. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, at the same time, Schwab is not out here to lose money. So let's not kind of fool ourselves from the standpoint of 
the investments and the recommendation, like there's going to be some things that are focused around like Schwab offerings. And that's okay too, because totally. it isn't expensive and it's still a solid offering. There's no bashing on what they, what they do. Secondly, I think for the industry, we've all come from different backgrounds to get to where we're at today, but this should be a good training ground for a lot of young people that want to come into the industry and do things the right way and not go out and have to call their hundred neighbors, friends, parents, and, um, you know, church members or whatever to go sell them a bunch of crappy insurance they don't need. So this can be a way to, over time, you're not going to have the personal relationship. And I think that's the big differentiator. You're not going to have a niche focus. So you have advisors that are really deciding to say, you know, I'm going to come in and do more than just investment management and call you once a year and check up how things are going and getting much more ingrained. But this is a good start to have kind of those at-bats, have the conversations, deal with real-world issues when someone calls up and has a problem or something's going on and they're crying on the phone and they're like, oh my gosh, I've never had to deal with this. So it's training, I think, advisors to go about it in the right way and not be selling and peddling products, which the industry is still have a lot of those folks, but it's moved away. And I would say it's going to continue to, and there's a, a trillions and trillions of dollars of assets that are in places that shouldn't be, as we talked about in the intro. This will help slowly move those to areas where they should. And um, Morningstar did a lot of research. A lot of times fees justify, or sorry, fees are a big um, predictor of overall returns. So if you can move someone from something maybe it's really high fee to something that's better and they get, even if it's just very generic advice, it's gonna be better than no advice or advice that's just there to sell something. Say, oh, well, looks like you need this. And that, that to me, it's a good move. And it does show the validity of what financial planning will be in the future yeah i i I certainly agree thanks for bringing up the point about um new advisors coming into the industry because i think that that's one of the great hurdles that our profession is still trying to figure out is how do we pay somebody a fixed salary for something that was traditionally uh, an asset movement role right like whether you were selling insurance whether you were selling investments or or just bringing in new assets it was always about how much can i produce and therefore how much money do i make yeah commission and, based salary yeah, or, you know, commission based commission or or even fee based but when you're telling when you're telling an advisor like first out of college like hey man i'm going to need you to go work with clients and make us money like that's kind of that's kind of rough, you know. Um, they they don't necessarily have the training to do all of that, and they're learning on the fly. Whereas I, I think you know, to your point, Isaiah, it, having them be able to come in and have a client facing role that doesn't necessarily rely on them being able to sell products right out of the gate could be a huge boon, especially if it's a salaried position and all that kind of stuff. It could bring a lot more people into the industry that are good at it. So, yeah, and real real quick, I mean, thing. where I started my career at, I was fortunate with who I got hired with and the team mentality where I, I came into more of like a client, you know, support role, helping the senior advisor free up his time and, and learn kind of the business from the inside. But the role, if I wouldn't have been hired in that role, is $10 million in two years. If you don't bring in $10 million in two years, you're out the door, period, end of subject. And it's a minimum of $250,000 of investable assets. To your point, you come out of college, unless you have family money or know people that are wealthy that are going to move money over, you are, you know, spitting in the wind. There's no way you are going to be able to find that. There's, I don't care how talented you are. It's really, really difficult to sell based on just, hey, our process is better because they're not doing true planning in that environment. It is pure investment management with a generic financial plan associated with it. Yeah. Well, and, and 
and to be fair, it's like it's it's come off of this model that the financial companies had for so long, which was we're going to churn and burn these advisors and just keep whatever they did bring in. Right. Because they set those intentionally high bars on purpose. Not only does it make it profitable for the firm to keep you, but it also means that if you miss the bar, even if you got that million instead of two million in the first two years, well, now they have a million in assets at or wherever the wherever the you know company was and you don't have to uh you don't have to deal with it anymore kind of thing and, and so it, it it's just very profitable for the firms to do that and i think that we need to move away from that and schwab offering this service might be one of the first steps the industry takes towards doing that which is a good thing yeah i'd say overall we're probably uh, all in favor of at least the the idea of the movement I mean, yeah, is there probably going to be some like Planet Fitness, you know, model to it where people just sign up and because it's so cheap, they just don't unsign or unsubscribe. They just forget that they had the service. Yeah, and they just keep paying it because it's like, oh, it's not that much and I'll use it one day. So it's I, I can't imagine that there's a, going to be a ton of motivation on, Char, on Schwab's side to call people and check in on their progress or make sure that they got that estate plan done or make sure that they reallocated their 401k. I mean, I'm sure that's going to be, and I actually, I shouldn't speak too much about the services, but I would just have to imagine that that's, you know, you're probably not going to see a lot of that, but you know, you get what you pay for and that's okay. Yeah. All right. So I think that's probably enough on this topic. Do you guys want to wrap up for this week? Um, well, I guess this is just the first podcast of, uh, of hopefully many more and some great discussions. So uh, I'll give a, a couple snaps to Financial Foresight and uh, thank everyone for listening. Yeah, I think the big takeaway today is, you know, regardless of what Donald Trump tweets, regardless of what tariffs are said, regardless of all these different things, have a plan, stick to a plan, execute, relentlessly execute, don't fly from thing to thing. You'll be a lot better off um, if you need, you know, help from a partner, find one that you can trust and that does it the right way. And also understand that financial freedom versus financial independence, we think is probably the same thing, but it's all good because if someone's getting to that just thought process of saving and put away money for a goal, like that's all that you really need to do is sometimes just get motivated to Heck do yeah. it versus never really thinking about it, waking up one day and being 50 and saying, Oh shit, I got to do something. You know, that <laughs> exactly, I think man. that's where, as much as we want to argue about the semantics, like the idea of just really planning and focused and working towards a goal is, is key. And then Schwab's going to be good for the industry. Um, I don't think any of us are intimidated by that. We think we do things a little bit differently. We all have our niche. We all have our focus. And um, yeah, it'll be great for young advisors coming in the industry and replace some of the uh, older ones that still have an old school mindset that want to sell you stuff. So that's my thoughts. Well wrapped up, Isaiah. I don't know if I have that much to add, but thank you guys for listening to the first episode of the Financial Foresight Podcast. Hope you guys got a lot from it, and uh, have a wonderful day. Peace. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you, and thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.